Once upon a time, um, there was this very wealthy father who uh, threw this amazing wedding reception party to celebrate his daughter's wedding. And there was great music and there was amazing food and there was really just quality wine. And just before it was time for dinner, um, the father asked all, he got everybody's attention and he asked the guests if he could just uh, take a moment and just thank God for all the good gifts of the day. And, you know, he's paying for the party, so everybody obliged him. Like, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever, yeah, go ahead and pray. Um, and he, but he prays this prayer of uh, thanks to God, and then the party carries on. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there was lots of really great wine, and uh, one of the guests in particular helped himself to one glass too many. And so feeling a little braver than usual, he approached the father of the bride, and he said, uh, nice speech, referring very sarcastically to his prayer. And uh, he said, well, okay, but I got a question for you. If, um, if, you, if you believe all this God stuff, I, 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 I've, just, I've got a question for you. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before where you're like, oh boy, what are we about to get into? What are they going to ask me? And he says, you know, my, my wife and my kids would tell you I'm, they feel really loved by me, really hard, and I give people, Adam a good husband. Um, my coworkers will tell you I, I work really hard and I give people my best. And come tax time, I don't cheat. And I've made some really generous donations to, to different causes uh, in our community, and I, I give my time in that way. And I, sir, I, I mean this with all humility. I think I'm a pretty good person already. So why would I need God? I'm not sure that having God in my life would make much of a difference. Just imagine you're, you're in the Father's place. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you say to this guy? How do you respond? Have you ever met somebody who is a better human than you? (laughs) Have you ever met somebody who's a better human than many of the Christians in your life? And they are not a Christian. Has that ever messed with you? What do we have to say to people if we can't tell them that they're dirty, rotten sinners and uh, because they're actually pretty decent people? What, what, What do we have to share with them? What do we have to say? What's our approach? Good people really challenge our understanding of what our gospel is. To go, I, I actually don't know what to share with you. I don't know what to say. Do you, do you have somebody in your life, do you have some people in your life who would say, I'm, they would say, I'm, I'm good without God. I, I've got a good life and happy with how things are going and, you know, happy for you. Do you have some people in your life who, that's, that's their mindset, that's their attitude? Yeah, that's, that's the spirit of this neighborhood where we are right now, lots of people who would say, I'm I'm good without God. I like my life. I like what's going on. You and I, as a church planted here in this neighborhood, we need to understand the spirit of this place, the spirit of, of this neighborhood and the people who live around us because, and we need to discover what the gospel actually is and what it isn't. If we're gonna know how to interact with our friends who would say that they're good without God. Paul's going to give us the gospel. He just told us uh, from what we read, and he starts with the bad news. Um, but I just, just, just as a just social experiment, I'm just curious, who in the room, if I said, I've got some good news to share with you and some bad news to share with you, who are the people who say, I want to hear the good news first? Please, whatever the bad news is, give me the good news first. That'll maybe prepare me for the horrible, tragic thing you're about to tell me. Just give me some good stuff first. Okay, and who are the give me the bad? Just get it out of the way. Yeah, quick like a Band-Aid. All right, cool. All right, so except for two of you, you're actually going to appreciate Paul's approach uh, because 
Paul actually, he's the author of the letter to the Ephesians, and he doesn't announce the good news until he gets all the really bad news out of the way and what we just read. And what we're going to see is that the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Before he announces the really good, Paul's going to take us through the really bad. So first of all, he just doesn't pull any punches. He just says, as for you, you were dead. That's just how he starts. <laughs> dead, 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 dead. And, and he's not giving us a metaphor. He's being as serious as he can. He's saying, apart from Jesus, you and I were basically walking corpses. Apart from the author of life, Paul wants us to know you and I are dead. But just imagine saying this to a friend or a family member or a coworker who doesn't follow Jesus. How, how in the world would you even bring this up with them? Imagine sharing this with a good person in your life. It doesn't square with the very much of a lot of people that we know. Lots of people who have no faith in Jesus appear to be very much alive. Sometimes even more alive than some of the Christians in our life. Some of our friends are incredibly healthy and athletic. They run like three marathons a year. Some of our friends, they have incredible brains uh, or they've got this magnetic personality or there's just those super awful people that are this amazing combo of all three and you're just like, not fair. But some of, some of our friends are fantastic spouses and parents and coworkers. But apart from Jesus, Paul wants us and them to know you're dead. And so the father of the bride, he puts his hand on the young man's shoulder and he says, you know, I, I really believe you. You really are a good man. You're a good husband, a good father, good coworker, good human. And I'm not really sure that becoming a Christian is going to make you much better than you already are. But just around the corner is a cemetery. And there's lots of good people buried in the ground. There are so many people who lived lives and they were incredibly healthy and intelligent. And they had, they just, just full of personality, life of the party, great family lives. But none of those good things are going to bring them back to us. What if the heart of the Christian life, what if the heart of the gospel is not about goodness? What if all along it's about whether or not you and I have or do not have the gift of life. Because if our lives are disconnected from the source of life, we are dead where we stand. So run that marathon. Read those books. Have those deep friendships. Enjoy them, but it doesn't change the fact that you're going to die. And after you die, you cannot bring yourself back. But Paul wants us to know it gets a lot worse before it gets better. He has more. He says, we were walking according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Uh, in the original language, that word world is cosmos. What's that remind you of? Cosmos, as you hear that. Yes, Daniel points up. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the stars, the sky. So picture yourself under the night sky. Um, and, and some of us, have the, we, we have the knowledge. We know how all the constellations are mapped out. We could tell you how this one's this and that one's that. Um, constellations are a specific way to organize and systematize groups of stars. And cosmos, that word cosmos for world, describes human systems that are organizing themselves without God. A way of systematizing and organizing your life, a city, a family, without God. That's cosmos. Use means by the word world. 
We used to go with that flow, Paul says. We used to take our cues about identity and values and sexuality and worldview from a system that is trying to organize itself without God. And, Paul says, we were going according to the flow of spiritual powers that despise and oppose the name of Jesus. The prince of the power of the air, that's how Paul describes this, this, this being, which is a title for the Satan. Um, we were unwittingly cooperating with powers that were opposed to the living God. And that sounds crazy to our contemporary world. If you tried to bring this up with just friends, neighbors, coworkers, they would just be like, you are so weird. What are you, what are you talking about? But according to the authors of scripture, we're never gonna understand our dimension unless we take this other dimension seriously. But, Paul wants us to know, it gets worse before it gets better. The lust of the flesh, he says, uh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. We're all susceptible to it. Though with this word flesh, sometimes it means like physical flesh and blood, um, but here it's referring to a broken, fallen, rebellious human nature that is trying to live its way without God. So cosmos is like that, but flesh is, a, is a, a person who is trying to live that kind of life apart from God. It's a human nature that is turned away from the living God and then turned in on itself. And I'm sure this is how all of us get up, get up in the morning, right? Your morning stretches by all your VHS tapes. So yeah, he's got Dumb and Dumber in his collection right there by his head. That's a good one. Um, but, but we become our own center when we live according to the flesh. We become self-oriented, self-preoccupied, self-driven, self-governed. Our, our culture looks at people like this and, and would applaud people like that just to go, you're amazing. You're, you're a self-made person. But when we become our own center, we become our own truth. We become our own standard. And when we become our own truth, when we become our own standard for what it really is, and we get bent in on ourselves, and we can't see things any other way, and it's, it becomes so hard to rescue somebody like this. We craft our own identity and values and sexuality and worldview apart from the source of truth. We go against the voice of the creator. We go against the grain of how he created us to live, and Paul says we become children of wrath. Now, you hear that word wrath, and that might give you a picture of somebody who's like out of control, angry, like, you're, oh, if, when dad gets home, you're going to feel his wrath, you know? Um, but what, the scriptures mean something different by wrath. We've, we've, we've taken it to mean somebody who's out of control, angry. Paul tells us in Romans that more often than not, the expression of God's wrath, it's not thunderbolts from heaven. More often than not, the way God's wrath works out is that God hands us over to the consequences of us opposing him the sin that we keep choosing. God's wrath, it's not so much a divine spanking. It, it usually takes the form of God withdrawing his life-giving spirit and presence from us, from people who don't want him. God withdraws his life and he hands us over. And when, when that happens to you, it has this slow dehumanizing effect. And some of us have seen this in our own lives. Some of us have seen this in the lives of people that we care about where they are slowly withering away. And it might not look obvious on the outside. Sometimes it does. But, but, but you just see, man, it's like this person is a, a walking corpse, like the zombies in The Walking Dead. 
they, it's, it's interesting in the, in, the, in, the sh- in the show The Walking Dead, at the beginning, like, these guys are the freakiest things that you can imagine. After a while, it's actually the human characters that get scarier, but there's moments where the, the humans interact with the, the zombies, and you just see in the face of the humans just this, like, pity as they look at these creatures, where they're just like, oh, you used to be, like, a mother or a coworker or a, just, you used to be human, and what are you now? It, it, that, that's the effect of, of God handing us over, where we used to have some semblance of humanity, but, but we're lifeless, we're carnal, we're slowly wasting away. By handing us over, God says, okay, it, you want to keep crossing boundaries? You want to you wanna keep going with the flow of a system that, that's opposing me? You want to keep giving into powers that oppose my best for you? You want to you wanna live with yourself at the center? Wish granted. I will, I will leave you to yourself. C.S. Lewis says that fundamentally there's two different kinds of people in the world. There's, there's those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those who hear from God, thy will be done. That is wrath. The good news is only skeptical people in your life. Apart from a work of grace, if, if you walk them through this, I'm not really sure how they're going to come to agree with you that this is a real, realistic description of their life. Apart from a work of grace, some of us, based on our stories and where God's brought us, we have a way easier time agreeing with this. We'd say, oh yeah, apart from Jesus, I was a mess. Let me tell you, I got some stories. But for other people in our life, they just can't see it. If, we, if you tried to bring this up with them, you would, you would hit a wall. It would be really difficult. Last, last week, we heard Paul pray that God would open the eyes of our heart, and these words here in Ephesians 2 are actually a continuation of that prayer. For God to open our eyes, that is a gift that we can't give to somebody else. We can't enlighten them. We can't open them up. No matter how well-reasoned you are and how, you lay it, make, how good of a case you make, you can't give them this gift. We can't give this gift to ourselves. Only God can give this gift of open eyes. And what Paul's telling us, it's a continuation of this prayer because if we're going to see that what Paul is saying about us, he says, as for you, if we're going to believe and trust that this is actually a, a, a fair assessment of what our life is like apart from Christ, the only way that's going to be possible is because God has opened our eyes to see it and go, yep, he's right. That's the only way. If God's going to open the eyes of our heart, then we would affirm, yeah, I was dead. I was dead to God and the life of God. I used to follow the ways of this world. I used to follow the ways of the devil. A couple months or years ago, if you told me I was following the ways of the devil, I thought you were crazy, but now God's opened my eyes, and I'm like, yeah, I still know it sounds weird, but it's true. I used to follow whatever my broken desires and thoughts wanted me to do and think, and so I deserved what was coming to me. When, uh, if you guys want to hear a great story sometime, um, take Ernestina out for a coffee or tea and just say, hey, Ernestina, tell, tell, me, tell me some of your story. She's probably uh, not, like, I, I, I'm soliciting her story right now, and she's like, oh, geez. But, but, she, but really, but really, she's a good storyteller. Um, she's a really good storyteller. You should, you know, buy her a boba tea or something so it's worth, worth the price of admission. But, but, but um, you're going to hear in her story that when Ernestina was still new to the way of Jesus, um, these, these things were a real sticking point for her. She told the other Jesus followers in her life, like, I just don't see how that's true about me. I just don't. And they didn't argue with her. They just said, well, why don't you, why don't you pray? And why don't you ask God to convince you that this is true? And so she did. And wow, did God answer that prayer. 
in, uh, in John 16, Jesus told us the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's got to be the one that we trust to, to, to convince that person of what, what is true and what, to bring that conviction. If we try it, it just feels like a guilt trip. But if the Holy Spirit does it, it's real, and they're like, hey, I got to talk to you. Uh, I got to talk to you about what's going on in my life. That was Ernestina's experience. God answered that prayer the very next day. God brought so much conviction to her heart about how lost and broken she was apart from Jesus. God opened her eyes and suddenly something she couldn't see was all that she could see all around her and and inside of her. And as awful as this was, she needed God to convince her of the really, really bad news so that she would be ready then to experience the really, really good news. God is the only one who can bring us to that place where, like Paul will say, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body that's subject to death? But then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The really, really good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. So, how about we get to the good news? Does that sound all right? All right. Repeat after me. But God... But God, Paul's little phrase takes us right into the heart of the gospel, right into the heart of the good news. This is the transition, but God. But God is the good news in its like simplest news and compact form. All of us have a but God story. We could say, here was the bad news, and then here comes the moment though that I was really excited to tell you about. But God, and then we've got a story. But God could be the the story of the entire uh, scripture, especially in the middle. Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, he's crucified on a Roman cross, but God raised him from the dead. And that's our stories too. We were dead in sin, we were in a pit we couldn't rescue ourselves from, but God. This little phrase takes us into the heart of God, this little phrase takes us into the, into the heart of our story with God. This is where everything turns. So, if we're going to appreciate the really, really good news, um, jot down these three verbs that Paul uses. Uh, made alive, that's in verse 5. Raised up, that's in verse 6. And seated, verse 6. These are all the but God things that God did for us. First of all, we were dead. Made alive, but we were, because we were dead. Dead people cannot bring themselves back, but God made us alive in Christ. Let me hear you say raised up. We had wrath coming our way. Well-deserved wrath. God had given us over to the life that we wanted to live. We, we, I, God, I want to live life on my own terms, my own way. I don't, I don't need you. We had wrath coming our way, but God raised us up in Christ. And let me hear you say seated. We were slaves to a broken way of life, and slaves can't set themselves free. But God seated us with Christ, made, made alive, raised up, seated. All of these things that God has done have been done in Christ and with Christ. He's the key. He's the linchpin for the whole thing. Jesus has been made alive. He was victorious over death. Jesus has been raised up. He ascended to the throne of the universe. Jesus has been seated. He became king. Now, here's what's amazing. Paul wants us to know that what is true about Jesus has become true about us. 
I'm just going to say that again so we don't miss it. What is true about Jesus has become true about us. Yes, God resurrected and raised up and seated Jesus, but now Paul wants us to know God has resurrected and raised up and seated us. What does it mean to be a Christian? It is, it, it is so much more than just admiring and worshiping Jesus. It is that, but it's so much more. It's so much more than holding to the truth of Scripture. It is, but it's so much more. It's so much more than pursuing a holy life. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases to describe our reality, and you can't get any closer than in. Because God has united us to Jesus, we share in his resurrection, his ascension, and his royal rule. So here's the gospel from Paul's three verbs. Our lives and the structures of reality itself have been forever altered by Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and enthronement. What is true of Jesus is true of those who are in Christ. Even now, while we're still in these decaying bodies on this profoundly fragile planet, while sin and death are still around, we share in Jesus' new order and power and victory and this new dominion over all things in heaven and earth. Because we are in Christ, death is not final and therefore does not need to be feared. Because we're in Christ, sin is not final and so we don't live in bondage to shame. Because we're in Christ, evil is not final and therefore does not need to be a game we play according to. Can I hear a yippee, yahoo, amen, something? Because wow, this is amazing. But it's not always obvious, am I right? Isn't it easier to look out at our world and assume that death and sin and evil still have the last word? That they're still, that they're still the ones who are running the show? That's why Paul prays that God would open our eyes to see that this is true. And that's, that's what we have to pray for the people in our life who don't hold Jesus as their king and their savior. Think about the, the person in your life who doesn't want anything to do with God or doesn't think God wants anything to do with them. Where would they be at with Paul's words about the really, really bad news and the really, really good news? We've got to recognize the fact that when it comes to these people in our life that we care about, that God has to open their eyes. Until then, it's going to feel like this forced thing and we might lose total credibility with them and after a while, we don't get to speak into their lives anymore because we're forcing something that was never our job to begin with. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. We also have to recognize that there's, they're on a journey and it's, um, there's different steps along that journey. There's a really helpful map to lay out that, uh, that journey. It's called um, the Gray Matrix, named after a guy named Frank Gray, uh, who cares a, cares a lot about evangelism, sharing your faith, and he just wanted to, he did a lot of research to plot out people's, just people's different journeys and experiences, and, and this, this tool helps us to understand where people are at in their spiritual pilgrimage, and it helps us understand more clearly what God's up to in their life at certain stages, and then that also, it asks us to call to play because different stages are going to require different things of us. It asks us to consider how open or closed somebody is, because these different things that are in their way, they will be more open or closed to those things. Um, Before they cross the line of faith, there are a lot of different barriers in the way. There's a lot of faith jumps that they would have to make before they ever get to that moment where they'd say, yeah, Jesus is my king, he's my Lord, he's my savior. 
there's a lot of huge leaps that have to be made. But only some of us are so nerdy that we're going to appreciate scales and parabolas. So let's make this fun. You guys remember the game Barrel of Monkeys? Me too. Guess who didn't have the game? Literally any store in Oakland this week. And uh, so we have uh, animal parade links, which um, are just as great. But, but, but not just as great. Um, but here's the, th here's the thing. I can reuse these later with my infant son. So that's great. Um, here's the picture. Some of, us, uh, some of us started with no God framework whatsoever. And so it's a huge moment in our life if we're going to even recognize that God can be known. But all of us are on a spiritual journey, and this, this was a huge faith leap for us to make. Can, can okay, just that there is a God. Which God? Does this God have a name? What's this God like? What's this God's character? Huge leap for us to make when that happened. If then you came to believe that Jesus was the one who had come to remove the barriers standing between you and God, that was a huge leap of faith for you to make. Okay, God has a name. His name is Jesus. This is how he saved me. This is how I can interact with him. That was a huge leap to make. But then you had to trust God's assessment of the state of your life, that what I'm reading about in Ephesians, that sounds crazy. But somewhere along the line, you, you get convinced by God. Yeah, that's my story. I was dead. I was in and I was bent in desires and I was partnering with the devil and I was bent in on myself and there was nothing I could do to save myself. Only God can save me. These are all huge leaps for somebody to make. And then for us to realize that only God can save me, let's say that you cross the line of faith. And God became your king. He became your savior. Even after that point, there's still so much growth and transformation that needs to happen in your life. Um, God as father. Some of us, depending on where we're at with uh, our dads, uh, great dad, non-existent dad, uh, dad who tried his best, or terrible dad. Wherever we're at with that, we hear that God's my father. That could have been a really tough one to embrace. Or you're like, I'm not even there yet. I'm still not there yet. Uh, that, that one God's still working on with me. That's, that's a huge leap. Um, God's love for you, depending on your ability to receive love, that could be a real sticking point to go, yeah, I, 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 I just see all these other people who just seem like they experience God's love and grace and friendship, and there's just something in the way. There's a barrier. I can't seem to receive this. I, I, I can offer it to other people, but I'm not experiencing this myself. God, what's going on here? God's kingdom. Um, despite what our eyes can see, despite what we're reading in the news, despite all the darkness of, of the world, for us to trust that the cross and the empty tomb changed everything, that God brought something new into the world in the shell of the old one, that there's a kingdom that's here but not yet here, that's a huge leap to make. And, and on and on it goes. Uh, I, have, I have a role to play in this kingdom. Um, I have spiritual gifts, all, all kinds of stuff. Think about, um, think about your own faith journey and some of the different faith leaps that had to be made along the way. What were the major sticking points for you? What, which ones of these were harder ones 
for you to make that maybe it was, it was easier for somebody else, but for you, you're like, ooh, that one, that one took months. That one took years. That one, I'm still in the middle of it. But also, um, how is God still at work in your life? Maybe you crossed the line of faith, but there's still so much growth that needs to happen. What is God currently doing in your life? Where do you still need to grow? Has God been talking to you about that? Do you have a sense of, yeah, there's this thing in front of me and it's not in my rearview mirror yet. It's still very much my reality and I, I haven't overcome this yet. I haven't crossed that barrier yet. It's still a sticking point. Think about the faith journey of the people in your life that you care about. Where, um, we're all about this moment, conversion moment, because it's, it's really sexy, it's really exciting, it's like powerful, just wow. It's, it's such a cool moment to be a part of, and I'm not going to downplay that. I've, I've been able to see that in different people's lives. That conversion moment can be really cool, but um, if we're not careful, um, this is the only moment in their life that we care about, and we can be pushing them towards that, a moment that they're not ready for yet. Is, is this where they're at, or are they somewhere earlier? Is, 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 are, are they stuck somewhere else? Are, are we paying attention to what God's doing in their life right now? Or are we trying to speed them along in their journey to get them to this conversion moment? Here's a, here's a tough question. What if God has a part for us to play in their journey, but we're not going to be around for this moment? Somebody else is going to be there for that. What if the part we have to play in their story is somewhere over here? Are we okay with that? Or are we going to be super resentful when we find out later, like, what? You became a Christ follower and I wasn't even, what? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the part that God has for us to play in their journey? Do we trust that I'm not the Savior, that I'm not the King, that God is going to be responsible for this whole picture and my part is here or here or here? Are we okay with that? Can we trust that God knows what he's doing in their life and that he knows what he's doing in our life? I, uh, I think about uh, the guy who cuts my hair, uh, my barber. Um, some of us, we see our barber more than we hang out with some of our friends. Um, we, we see them, you know, anywhere from four to every 48 weeks or whatever. Um, and you sit in that chair for, you know, anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple hours and you can really get to know somebody over time. And um, just getting to know my barber, um, he's a good guy, he's a good boss, he runs a good place. I, I, I think he takes really good care of everybody in the shop, it's, it's his place. There's a lot of brokenness in his life. And he's honest about it. Um, he'll let me, he's, he's, he's recently divorced and I can tell he's having a really hard time with it. Um, he's trying to date again and I can tell he's having a really hard time with that. But he also knows that I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, so there's a little bit of a wall up there. And I just go, okay, God, I'm, I'm here in this guy's chair. I'm going to be here again, you know, in a matter of weeks. Um, where, where is he at? Where is he stuck? What, and what part do you have for me to play? And God's teaching me to be patient because everything in me, it just, it just hurts to see him struggle like this. I want to move him so much further along than where he actually is right now. Um, but I've done, I've done that enough times in the past to know that's a terrible idea, but it's so hard to just like sit there and see somebody struggle and you just, you just want so much more for them than what they're actually ready for. But I just have to trust, God, you know what they're doing. You're, you know what you're doing in his life, and I'm somewhere in here in this, in this process. I'm not really sure yet, but I'm just asking God to show me that. 
can we trust that God knows what he's doing? I think that we can. Um, each, of our, each of our faith journeys are different, um, but God knows what needs to happen to bring us across the line of faith. But even after that, he has so much more for us after we've crossed the line of faith. The, the future of what God has in comparable riches of his grace. Um, he, Paul says, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing, as, as kind as God has already been to me and you, he has more kindness in store for me and for you and the people we care about. As kind as God's already been, there's more in the future. What it's going to be, I don't know, but he's got more. And then God's future is even better. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Um, faith is one of those churchy words we throw around. Um, if, if that one's a hard, for you, hard one for you, substitute it with the word trust, and you're saying the same thing. A life of faith is a life of trust. Jesus, I'm, I'm trusting you. My faith is in you. You could substitute the word grace, uh, if that's too churchy for you and it doesn't, it doesn't resonate, you could substitute in the word gift, and you're saying the same thing. Grace is a gift, which means it's something that has to be received, not earned. We receive the gift by trusting the giver, and there's always going to be steps, further steps we have to take into more trust, into receiving more of those gifts from God. As much as we've already learned to trust God's grace, there's still so many places in our lives where God's grace still has to break in and change us in our thinking and our behavior and our, our, our gut responses to things, from our need to be in control, for our anxiety, our judgmental spirit, our inability to receive love. There's still so many gifts that God has in store for us that he's going to give us, but this is going to require that we trust the giver, the one who gives the gifts of grace. But God's future still is so good. There's still so much, so much in store. He says we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has, God has plans for you. He's, he's, got, he's, got, he's got dreams. He's got thoughts about where he wants to take you all of our faith journeys are unique, and if, if we trace all the different faith steps that we had to take, it's such a cool exercise to just to trace all that stuff because it just builds up so much faith in you to go, man, God, you were so patient. I was stuck here forever, and you, just, and you hung with me. You hung with me while I was here for ages. You're so patient. You're so good. You knew what you were doing. It builds faith that God knows what he's doing in my life and in your life because Paul says we're God's handiwork. Our stories are not thrown together. Our stories are divine artwork. God is an artist and you are his masterpiece. The, the word uh, handiwork is poema. Poema. Try saying that. Poema. What does that sound like? Like a poem. You're God's poem. You're his masterpiece. You and now, someone rescued to be God's masterpiece. Now, some of us, we hear that word masterpiece and you just go, yeah, but I look at my life and what, <laughs> where I'm at. I don't, I don't feel like a masterpiece. I feel like a thrown together, you know, piece of macaroni artwork that some kindergartner threw together. You know, some glitter and still kind of sticky. And I, 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 don't, I don't feel like a masterpiece if, 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 you're, if I'm being honest. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, Paul started with the really, really bad news before he could get to the really, really good news, and that's also how God works when it comes to making us his masterpiece. He's able to work with the whole thing. 
we don't need to just jump ahead to the good thing. God can account for the really dark, broken, messed up stuff as he's doing this masterpiece work. And um, I can't really think of any better way to help us understand what this is like than there's this Japanese art style, and it's called kintsugi. And if anybody in here is more familiar with Japanese, I'm so sorry about my pronunciation. Kintsugi, uh, which means golden joinery, or um, kintsukuroi which is golden repair. This is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with gold. It's beautiful. This artwork, this art form, comes from the belief that broken objects are not to be thrown away because they are not beyond repair. These broken objects have a unique history to be honored. And that unique history includes the breaks as part of that history and the repair as part of that history. Every repaired piece is unique because the breaks are unique. And that's like our story. Our story has its own unique beauty thanks to the unique cracks and breaks that were formed in those moments when we were broken. We can say this as we tell our but God story. We don't skimp over the dark and dirty and messed up details. That's part of it. Yeah, you say, I was dead. I was a slave to brokenness and darkness. But God, God redeemed the brokenness. But God, God, he was able to account even for the darkest parts of my story and weave it into the story. But God, God is putting me back together. But God, God rescued me so that I could become his poema, his masterpiece. I want to I want to invite up the worship team. But I want I want I want us to to stick with to stay with this image. When it comes to your story, uh, when it comes to being a Christian, Christians don't disguise their brokenness. It's a it's an essential part of your story. Not because we're morbid and obsessed with sin and death and all that kind of stuff, but we've just, we've come to see our brokenness with new eyes, with eyes of grace. We see that Jesus brings beauty from our scars. Isn't that exactly what happened with his own scars? In the upper room, to show his disciples, you guys, it's me. He didn't hide his wounds. He didn't hide his scars. He told his disciples, put your hands right here. Feel it, touch it, see it. It's me, you guys. And this is, this is our way if we follow the way of Jesus. Let's, let's get deeply familiar with our stories so that we can tell that story to other people. It's one of the best ways to grow in trust that God knows exactly what he's doing with what he still has to do in our life and that he knows exactly what he's doing with the lives of the people that we care about. And let's not, as we tell our stories, don't, don't hide the broken and scarred parts of your story. Feature it. Let's trust that as we tell that story, it's a story of how God is redeeming and making a beautiful thing in our but God story. Even if there's some pieces that are still haven't been mended yet, you go, I, based on what he's already done with these other parts, I trust that this other part, it's going to come together in some way that's really beautiful. That's going to be too hard for me to describe right now, but it's going to happen, and it could happen for you too. That's how we tell our story. And so, Let's stand and let's sing and remind ourselves that this is true, that Jesus makes beautiful things.